it'd be so nice if we could just have a logical, objective perspective for a lot of situations, wouldn't it? But of course, it's human nature for us to fall victim to myths and fears. On this Saturday cast, the leadership lies we tend to tell ourselves and how to do better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 479. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders are born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. This is the monthly Saturday cast. About once a month here, I air an episode on Saturday that's a chat with one of our Academy members or listeners. The next regular episode is still coming on Monday, of course. The Saturday cast are sponsored and brought to you by the Coaching for Leaders Academy. The Academy is a year-long cohort of participant leaders who work personally with me to create movement in their leadership development and organizational results. You can discover more and get alerted about opportunities to apply for the Academy by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash Academy. And today I'm really excited for this conversation because it is with one of our longtime Academy members, and it really is going to bring us a perspective on so many of the things that a lot of us struggle with in leadership. And in fact, of course, Many of us do tell ourselves lies in leadership and how we are progressing on our professional careers. Uh, Today's guest just really has such a wonderful and unique perspective to bring to us and some of the ways we can practically work beyond these lies. I'm so glad to welcome Emily Leathers to the show today. Emily is an executive coach and also a software engineering manager. She has led teams and advised other managers for many years. She's seen the difference of a truly passionate leader and what a manager can do to make their team work for them and the world around them. Like a lot of managers and coaches, she's also had a front row seat to the patterns that cause a lot of us as leaders to overwork and overstress, and also has noticed the lies we tend to tell ourselves that lead to frustration and imposter syndrome. She is the author of The Guide, The Seven Lies That Cause Engineering Managers to Overwork, and she's also the host of the Emotional Leadership Podcast, and in addition to that, she's a member of the Coaching for Leaders Academy. Emily, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. So this is going to be a little different conversation than sometimes we do on the Saturday cast. Oftentimes we talk about experiences of some of our members and just what they've learned. And I think we will get into a little bit of that, but you really have such a unique perspective to bring to us because not only have you been a member of the Academy, but as I mentioned in the introduction, you've been a software engineering manager for many years. And you also have a coaching practice. And so you have been coaching leaders for many years. You also have been so gracious to coach a number of people within our academy community as you've been working on your own coach training. And so you have this unique perspective of seeing so many of the patterns that leaders fall into, especially within our academy community too. And so I'm really excited to learn from you just some of the patterns you're seeing with our own community and some of the lies we tell ourselves so that we can hopefully get better. Yeah. So I think where all of this stems from is that we as leaders and as human beings tend to set a lot of rules for ourselves. And we think these rules will make us better managers or good enough managers. But what most of them do is exhaust, overwhelm, or overwork us. So the way out of that 
is by learning to recognize those lies when you hear them from your own inner voice or when you hear them from someone else and to replace them with corresponding really healthy truths. Okay, well, let's dive into them. You have identified a number of the lies that you've seen in your work. And the first one is, I'm supposed to do everything that I, my manager or team can think of. This is a lie, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So when I think of my before and after story, what's me at the moment where I've been most frustrated, most overwhelmed, most really ready to walk in tomorrow and quit? I can hear this voice in my head that says things like, there's too much work and I won't get it done and I'm a failure and it's not fair. And so I'd throw myself into accomplishing as much of it as I could and then hating most minutes of doing that. And at the same time, be describing my company to the people around me as a great place to work and just the right job for me. And I found myself really wanting to blame my manager for having unrealistic expectations and for being willing to overwork themselves. I wanted to blame my company for not seeing that pain that I was in. And in reality, the issue was that I was too busy suffering and trying to prove that I was good enough at a game I'd already decided wasn't possible. And so I wasn't stepping back and addressing the underlying issues. So it was falling into this lie that I am supposed to do everything I can imagine, my manager can imagine, my team can imagine. And I think one of the things that folks who have met me (laughs) and worked with me may know is that I'm great at laying out really intricately planned projects. But what that means is that I would end up in this place where an idea would occur to me or I'd read a book books are always great triggers for this. And I'd realize a way that I could improve something that I was doing at work or in my life or a way that I wanted to grow. And so I'd lay out this big detailed, like all the ways I'm going to become a good enough human now. And that itself wasn't possible. But then my manager might have a different priority for me and my team would give me some sort of feedback. And all of a sudden, I would find myself saying that there was something wrong just because I couldn't do all of the things. But the thing is, as managers and as leaders, the core of our job is prioritizing and helping our team decide which problems are worth solving. And for me, what I was noticing is when I'm stuck in this lie, I'm not doing that for myself. And I see that so often in the other leaders that I work with as well. Um, They have big, long to-do lists. They don't put them on their calendar and actually prove out that it's possible. And then they spend a lot of time beating themselves up because they're not getting to everything on it. You say in your writing that we choose our work based on how recently it was suggested instead of by how important it is. And I was thinking about that and what you just said. And organizations really struggle with this too. It's not just, of course, individual leaders. Um, is you, know, you get the list of, here's our quarterly priorities, and there's 19 things on the list for the quarterly priorities versus the organization and executive leadership having done a thoughtful job of really prioritizing. So some, sometimes it really does come down to us individually of needing to make those prioritization decisions. Yeah. And one thing that's been fascinating for me recently, I love, by the way, the way that my company does halfly planning, which is that we start with the company's strategy. What is our long-term vision? What does that look like in the next few years? How does that break down into our strategy for how we're going to get there in the next few years? And then what are the company OKRs? For folks who don't know what OKRs are, they stand for objectives and key results. It's super easy to Google. You can find many great resources on it. But basically, it's a way of laying out your goals and saying what you're going to accomplish. 
And so the company sets those and then we set them for strategic areas and we set them for teams and then it bounces back up. And you basically kind of do what Excel does when it uses the goal seek function and you find a happy medium between what the company strategy is and what teams can actually do. And you try, the goal is to take information from all up and down the company to make that happen. And I love that process, but I did have a fascinating moment recently where we were going through it and I was noticing my personal priorities changing a lot at the same time. I was noticing that there have been lots of things going on in the world around us recently that are causing me to want to stop and address them with my team that are causing my team members to rethink their own personal approaches to how they spend their time and how they go to work and that are causing us to really shift up a lot of who we decide we want to be at work. And for me, deciding who I wanted to be as a leader meant making time for more cultural advocacy within my company. At the same time that I was also supposed to be prioritizing my team's work for the next six months. And I found myself in this very meta moment of trying to decide, do I be the person that I want to be in terms of advocating for cultural change in a way that felt like there was this window that I'd have a much louder, much more effective platform in? And how did I stack that up against company-wide deadlines for this planning process? It's a really huge struggle that almost every leader faces, if not daily, certainly on a regular basis. Where have you come down on this, not only for yourself, but when you have leaders you're working with come to you and say, hey, I just there's there's 10,000 things on the list and I have time for just a handful of them. What practically yeah. do you find is useful to move past that place of feeling like you're just a deer in headlights and actually making traction on the things that are most important? I want to give you three answers to this one. The first is short and pithy. The second two are a little more actionable. The first is I reported to a manager. His name is John Thrall, and I worked and continue to work with him, have worked with him for years. One day when he was my manager, we had a conversation and he said words that have just stuck with me, which is we have to be able to look ourselves in the mirror every morning. And for me, all prioritization actually just comes back to those words. And for me, that's about trusting my instincts that I understand what's important to the company, to me, and in the world, and really loving my reasons for choosing what we do and for choosing what I spend my time on and what I help my team spend time on and what I advocate for getting done when I don't have the authority to just get that work prioritized by myself. So that's the first, that's kind of the pithy version is we have to be able to look at ourselves in the mirror every morning. The second thing I'd offer is looking at the vision first. So, so often we see all the little pain points in front of us and we say, what could I be doing right now? But really the best way that I know of to prioritize is to start from the end goal you're trying to get to. Hopefully you have one. If you don't have one end goal you're trying to get to, that's fine. Make sure you have a stack rank of where is it that you're trying to get. And then make sure you have the clear ability to measure how far you are towards each of those. Ideally, this is numbers. This is something you can chart over time. If it's not, that's totally fine. Gut instinct is good too. And then look at how big those gaps are and really try to create basically the critical path from here to there for each of them. And then you can just walk down that stack rank order. And for me, that always helps me cut out the like 40 to 80% of things that I'm thinking about 
that just aren't critically important right now. The third that I would mention is pay attention to why you want to prioritize something. And I think this ties back up a lot to that like lie of I'm supposed to do everything my manager can think of or my team can think of in addition to everything I can think of. We hear directives from our company and we want to follow those orders. A lot of us have a lot of conditioning for all of our lives that basically tells us we want to be part of the group. And so when someone sets a very clear expectation and says, I want you to finish this project on this timeline, our first instinct is like, of course I will. I will not let you down. But that's not what our company needs to hear from us. What our company and our managers need to hear from us is the same thing we need to hear from the employees we manage, which is, okay, I think I understand why that's important. Can you confirm that this is why that's important? Can you confirm that this is the end goal we're going towards? Now, based on what I'm seeing, here's how it fits with my other priorities. And I don't think it's the top one. In fact, I think it falls below the line. Or I think we'd have to scope it down by this much to make it happen. And not being afraid to have those conversations and noticing that if your reason for not wanting to cut something or not wanting to scope it back is because you are really not relishing that conversation with your manager or because you're not relishing the voice in your head that will tell you you're not good enough for getting it done, it's not important to listen to that voice and follow it. It's important to recognize that voice and decide that in my mind, that's probably not a reason you want to follow Mm. for choosing to do that work. I'm afraid to say no is a terrible reason to do something. And we've talked about this on the show recently that this is a real struggle for a lot of us of saying no. And yet it is the it is one of the core competencies of leadership of handling change, of setting a vision. And that means that we can't do it all. And so it becomes incumbent upon us. And if we don't do it, no one else will, right? We'll we'll end up either overwhelming ourselves, our teams, and then not making progress on the most important things, or at least not making as much as we should. And we see this happen in organizations all the time where everyone's really busy, but the organization isn't seeing meaningful movement forward. And it does, does really come down to that courage to have a conversation like that. Yeah, progress versus motion. We sometimes have a lot of motion with very little progress. One of the other lies that you've written about is that there's a timeline. And I was thinking about this one and thinking, well, that's curious because of course there is a timeline in every organization, but I think there's a deeper meaning to what you mean by this, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is the shorthand I use for all of those moments where you can often recognize them with frustration or failure. Frustration when you have a conversation with somebody else, you're suggesting an idea, and they don't buy in in the first conversation. And then you feel that little bit of like, no, they're awful, I don't like them, or I'm never going to get this project through. That's you implicitly having a timeline for how quickly you should be able to get this project prioritized, for how quickly you should be able to make this cultural change, for how quickly other people should understand that something you consider to be a really important value in your own life, in your leadership, for the company, for the world, is an important value from their perspective. Whatever that is, there's a lot of shoulds in there, right? And those are often a good signal that we have some um, questionable thinking going on. But a lot of these shoulds are, this should have happened faster. This also happens inside our own heads, which is, I should have been able to fit all of this into this week. Or I should have been able to write that email faster. Or I should be at a different place in my career than I am right now. 
I should be a director by now. I should have launched my own company. I'm falling behind. All of these things are variations of thinking, not only is there a set of things that must be done in order for us to be good enough, good enough human, good enough manager, good enough in our own eyes to not beat ourselves up, but that all of those things have to happen on this kind of invisible timeline. Mm. And I think this is one of the most hidden ones. We just judge ourselves as not good enough and we don't stop to say the difference is because it's going to take two weeks, not one week. And is that really something worth beating ourselves up over? Yeah. And I'm, I was thinking about everything you've just said in the, the context of one of the phrases I learned from Dale Carnegie of trying honestly to see things from the other person's point of view. And we do tend to, I, I know I do, and I see other people do this too. We, we tend to assume that whatever amount of time that it took me to do this or that I thought this would take is the amount of time that the other party is going to need. And sometimes it moves way faster or sometimes it moves much slower than that. And I do find myself having a lot of conversations where we'll be talking through a situation in one of our academy sessions uh, or, or with a client and we'll talk about you know making a big change culturally within the organization or trying to get someone's buy-in on something. And there's been a conversation about it or, or maybe an opening to a conversation, but nothing happened beyond that. And one or both parties are frustrated because nothing much happened after a first conversation. And and yet it often takes a lot more than that, doesn't it? I mean, it's not just like a defined timeline, like let's have a conversation and resolve this. It's a some of these issues are so complex that they may be weeks, months, years in the making as far as conversations to resolve. Yes. And this also ties into the first lie we were talking about, which has a lot to do with kind of overbooking or overscheduling yourself, because one of the reasons very tactically in the moment that people get frustrated when a conversation doesn't go the way they wanted it to the first time was that in their head, they only carved out enough time to have one conversation with this person. And I think we have to often go in creating a little bit more space for ourselves. And that really starts to pull up all of our own thinking about what should I be able to get done. Yeah, there's also the really interesting fallacy I've noticed in myself, and I think this is something that probably those of us that tend to be more introverted struggle with. I, I'm talking to some other folks who uh, have made this error before, and, and it is a thinking error for me, is I've been thinking about something for three weeks <laughs> or two days or however long I've been thinking about it. And I've had time to process it, kind of think through the conversation, think through the change, maybe the tough feedback, whatever it is. And then that conversation happens. And then for me, I'm like, oh, I'm done. That was good. Good for you, Dave, for having the tough conversation. And the other person is just now, for the very first time, starting to process it. Like they most of the time didn't know the conversation was going to happen. They weren't ready for that. And they are now on their journey of taking a couple of days or a week or two to kind of process that, especially if it's a more complex situation or there's feedback involved. And I, I have often made that error of not appreciating more the time of overlap that I need uh, with that other person of like, okay, I'm done. I'm on to the next thing mentally because I've sort of processed everything, but I've, I've forgotten to really look at things from the other person's perspective like you're inviting us to do. Yes. And then you also have those coworkers and we can probably all name several of them or several other people in our lives who, when you're speaking to them in the moment, if you have a disagreement, it's never going to get resolved there. Because the more you give counter evidence, the more they dig in. And if you've ever sat across the table from somebody and you just realize that like they're fighting for an opinion they no longer believe, they're already with you, they just can't stop. 
until the conversation ends. There are people I work with where I know two conversations of 10 minutes will be far more effective than one of 60 because they'll be with me right away. I just need to give them long enough for the like fight reflex to disengage so that they can come around and tell me that they agree. Closely related to this is the lie you say that emotions don't belong at work. Tell me about this one. Oh, yeah. So the number of clients that I work with who at some point in our work come in and basically say, so I've been trying to get to a calm and clean and neutral place around this where I just don't have any emotion because I need to come at this from a completely unemotional place in order to make a good decision. Huh. And thing is, our emotions are literally part of how our body functions. What we interpret as an emotion is an arrangement of muscles and chemicals in our body, and they prompt every single action we take. And so if we were actually feeling no emotion, we would be sitting staring at a wall and not really having any awareness that we're staring at a wall. And that's where very few leaders are going to make their best decisions from, is from like a stasis sleep state, basically, right? Even when we're asleep, we experience some kind of emotions, it seems. So recognizing that our emotions are what drive our actions, really what we need to start paying attention to is how are we reacting or how are we responding to noticing we're experiencing an emotion? And how do we respond when we notice which emotion we're experiencing? Mm-hmm. That often when we notice at work that we feel angry, we tell ourselves that's inappropriate. And I've actually got a podcast episode on anger. And what I love about Vivian Yang, who was the guest on it, she talked about how one of the reasons people don't like experiencing anger at work is that they're afraid that the way that they act when they're driven by anger will be behavior that they're not proud of or will be behavior that makes somebody else uncomfortable. But the thing is, We can experience an emotion like anger and not throw any plates at the wall and not scream at anybody else. That's just reacting to that emotion. But there's other choices that we have. And the healthiest one of those is actually to let that emotion exist in your body for 90 seconds or however long it takes and just let it be there without trying to shove it away, without trying to distract yourself and without feeling like you need to act it out. And that is totally healthy and totally safe. And so I think this idea for me, emotions absolutely belong at work for every single one of us in every moment, because we don't take any action in any way without them. What we need to do is understand what we think about and how we respond when we notice what emotions we're feeling and get a lot more comfortable with being willing to feel anger, but also being willing to feel pride and confidence, which a lot of us have trouble feeling at work. And remembering that when we try to shut off the emotion of frustration, we shut off our ability to feel motivated or dedicated or focused, which are also emotions. And likewise, when we or our team members feel like they're experiencing an emotion and it's not okay to express that or acknowledge it at work, people stop talking about the problems that they're having. They stop raising the experiences that aren't working for them because it's not okay to admit that you're frustrated because you're supposed to be dispassionate or because it's not okay to tell your manager that you're unhappy or that you don't feel confident or that you feel discriminated against or whatever else this emotional experience is for you because we think 
that emotions are somehow a signal of someone who isn't professional enough. And I think that's just a super important lie to counter. I'm thinking about Lori Gottlieb when she was on the show talking about what do we do with our emotions and making the point as a therapist that you can't just force your emotions to go away. Like you, you can hide them, you can cover them up, but they're going to come out at some point. And I, I think about this from a leadership standpoint, Emily, is that if the emotions are there, do I want people covering them up around me and not talking about them and just talking about them at the virtual water cooler or wherever? Or do I want to be part of that conversation? And most often I'm thinking, I want to know those emotions, especially if they are the negative emotions, especially if they're related to work and the team and things that are going on. I want to be aware of those things so that we can do something about it. And I even want to know if it's not necessarily related professionally. And not that we should bring everything in the workplace. Of, of course, that's not always appropriate. But I do want to know enough about the people I work with as human beings that when they're having a tough day, that they would feel safe, that they could bring that into the workplace, that they could know that they could share something like that and be a human being and not feel like they have to put on a persona. And yet, unfortunately, that isn't the case everywhere, as you just demonstrated in your example. And you, you write on this, learning to allow your emotions and use them to your advantage is critical for your success as a leader. And I'm curious, what have you seen work for someone as they became aware of this and started to actually allow their emotions to come in and utilize them? How has that helped? I can tell you one thing that's happened for me recently. I have a very different way of understanding the status of ongoing work than my manager does. And I had raised a project that was a concern for me in a way that we got the help that we were looking for on it, which was amazing. But it also meant that it became something that my manager was focusing on. And all of a sudden, I was being asked for very detailed numerical stats that in my mind were taking away from my ability to run this project because I had the information I needed to run it. And now I was trying to report on details for somebody else. I understood what my manager was getting at. It's really important in my mind as well to have a way to evaluate your progress on a project. And I think really what he was looking for was a simple indicator that things were going in the right direction or not, and that they were under control or not. But for me, I was experiencing these intense waves of frustration and not feeling trusted and feeling undervalued and feeling like this person didn't understand the broad variety of things I was trying to focus on. And I was so cranky, just so cranky. And the problem with that is that when I'm sitting there stewing and being cranky, I am not getting my work done. And one of the things that I did that got me over this, and this is something that I resolved recently, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. But one of the things that I did was just give myself a timer of 90 seconds to be as pissed off as I could imagine. Did I want to like actually scream out loud or move my mouth like I was? Sure, that helps sometimes too. But give myself a moment to actually sit and experience that emotion and let it happen in my body and stop trying to shove it away. Because when we shove it away is when it becomes exhausting. As I think you were saying, like Laura Gottlieb said, those will come back to you. And for me, it was coming back three minutes later when I looked back at the stats and tried to pull the next one. Yeah, And yeah. that was really ineffective. So sometimes 
just giving yourself space to have that emotion. The moment I started doing that, it took me like three hours to put together a much better format. It was super simple. I love the invitation to just you know allow yourself to feel those emotions and and I also am conscious that you know you're not saying okay you take the ninety seconds and like go you know yell at everyone in the conference room it's you know sometimes that's probably a lot of times it's in private but it's just allowing yourself to be fully present with this is really causing me anger right now or this is making me really sad right now so that you're not trying to force it away. You're present to it, and then it's working with your emotions and leading with your emotions. It's not leading because you're trying to put them in a box somewhere. Yeah, and it gives us the space to start being intentional and stop being reactive with what we choose to prioritize. Okay, let's look at one more of these lies. You say, I'm the lie that we tell ourselves as leaders is I'm supposed to have an answer for any problem or question that a team member asks. Like I, I'm saying that I'm sort of laughing at myself as I'm reading that because like we sort of inherently know that that's not true logically. Like it sounds like a lie when I read it out. And yet how I have made that mistake so many times, Emily, and I'm sure you have too, when you see people making this mistake all the time, don't you? And I make it all the time. This is just straight up one of the biggest lies leaders fall into. And as you said, even when we'd swear up and down, we know better, we still occasionally absolutely freak out. For example, when our manager asks us a question we don't know the answer to off the top of our head. Or even better, when a team member brings up a suggestion about a cultural change, we do not know how to immediately create. Mm. I come from software engineering. One thing we spend a lot of time indoctrinating new managers into is that kind of culture of leader as coach. And I know a favorite book we share in common is Michael Bungay Stanier's The Coaching Habit. I use a lot of his questions. I love them. And I think a lot of that shift is about helping someone answer their own questions instead of giving them the answer. And we accidentally end up with this line in our head that, well, we shouldn't have an answer to people who are more junior than us on a technical or a domain expertise topic because that's their growth. But... When it's something about our job, we should know the answer right away. Or when it's someone in the hierarchy above me, I should know the answer right away. And I am a bad manager for not knowing immediately what the status of this ticket that's in my sprint is. And for folks who don't use Scrum or aren't in software, the idea of a sprint is that you set up a week's worth of work or two weeks of work with your team, and then you just all know it'll get done at the end of the week. And so often... I trust my team will have the work done at the end of the week. And I don't actually know which work they've started and which they haven't on any given day. And that's fine. But if someone told me what's the status of this, often all they really need to hear is we have it in control. It'll be done by Friday, but I can watch all of my instincts flaring up. I don't know what the status of it is. Oh my gosh. Have they started it? Have they not? Who's working on it? How far is it done? Is it having any problems? Mm. And I think that's where even for those of us who are much more experienced. This one comes up all the time. Yeah. And this is one of those that kind of the smarter, more talented a person you tend to be, the more than you feel like you need to jump in and solve every problem that comes up too. Because a lot of times that's what got rewarded in the last position or being an individual contributor is doing a lot of that and then turning into becoming in a leadership role where it's a very different kind of job. And I'm I'm really interested in what, when you see managers, especially 
you know, managers early on in their career, when you see them start to get a hold of this and recognize it and then not jump in as much, what is it that works to help to begin to break this tendency of it? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, this lie is just a specialized version of there's a timeline. And that's the thing that helps people break it the most quickly. It's when you stop believing a pair of sentences. One is that there's a timeline this question needs to be answered on. It's fine if it isn't three minutes. It's fine if it's 15. It's fine if it's an hour. It's fine if it's two days. It's fine if this person asks an existential question and neither of you know the answer for a year and a half. Actually giving that space in your head to not be instantly terrified. And for many of us have that fight or flight reflex kick in or really fight, flight or freeze. When we face a question we don't know because our brain has categorized not knowing the answer as danger. Whoops. So I think the timeline portion of that is really an important aspect of it. The other thing is the voice in our head that tells us there's something wrong because we because our employee has a problem and we don't immediately have an answer to it. Mm. And there's so many reasons that comes up for people. In fact, that notion that I'm supposed to anticipate and prevent all the problems my team might face is another one of these leadership lies. And the fundamental piece under that, I think that happens in most people's heads, comes back again to kind of the first two that we talked about. These are all interwoven, where we think we need to prevent problems because we're afraid that if a problem comes up, it'll be at an inconvenient time and that that will give us a time crunch in the future. And therefore, we won't be able to get to everything that we wanted to do. So now we have our timeline lie and our I'm supposed to do everything lie. Or, or and, if that issue comes up in the future, if that problem comes up and we don't prevent it, that we'll have to think something that makes us feel bad. Mm. And I'm not only not supposed to feel bad because humans are supposed to be happy all the time, right? That's a huge <laughs> lie. Right. But also, humans are going to be happy 50-50, happy like... Just learn that if you're and lucky, everything gets right, easier. Right, if you're lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky. You, if you're lucky, you'll let yourself be 50-50. And notice when you tell yourself you're supposed to be 90% or 100% happy, and then you beat yourself up because there's something wrong with you that you're not, just chip it into the 50% happy. So. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for your work, Emily, um, is that, and you've picked this up in the context of the conversation, I'm sure listening that you know, you do so much work with technology leaders. And I think there is the tendency sometimes to think about the technology, the logic, the process, the procedure, and not always hold the emotion in the same place. And so I'm really so grateful for the work you've done to really elevate this and to look at how we lead as human beings and the full scope of it, not only the technical expertise and the subject matter expertise that so many of us have, but also with the human element and the emotional element too. So two invitations for you listening, if this has been helpful to you. One of them is I'd really encourage you to check out Emily's podcast. Um, I've had the privilege to listen to a few of her episodes. Uh, also, a few of our cabinet members have been guests on your podcast. Emily, thank you for featuring folks. And it's just a wonderful conversation. It's uh, especially uh, focusing on technology, but there's, you know, there's so many aspects of it that'll be helpful for everyone of really looking at the emotional side of leadership. And I love that you're having regular conversations with people on that and exploring that in such depth. So thank you for that. 
And then the other uh, resource I mentioned earlier, the seven lies that cause engineering managers to overwork. If you happen to be an engineering manager, I think this is a wonderful guide for you. And I'm going to set up a link at coachingforleaders.com slash Emily, and you can get to it easily. We'll also have it, of course, in this week's weekly leadership guide and the episode notes, so you can download it. And we haven't, we didn't have a chance to hit on all of them, Emily, but I think that there will be a ton of resources in there for folks who want to dive in on more. Uh, Emily Leathers, thank you so much for reminding us of the human parts of leadership. So grateful for your work. Oh, thank you, Dave. This has been so much fun. I think I mentioned early in the conversation that Emily has coached a number of our Academy members and uh, boy, folks always come back with rave reviews of her work. So if you happen to be a technology or engineering manager in particular, I think you'd find a lot of value in her report, The Seven Lies That Cause Engineering Managers to Overlook. That'll be available in the links in the episode notes, of course, this week's weekly leadership guide as well. She also may be a great resource for many of you who are looking for a coach to work with you one-on-one. In addition, I'd recommend several related episodes to this conversation. We talked about the importance of helping folks find safety in an organization and to feel safe of being able to engage. We went into great detail on that in episode 404, how to build psychological safety with Amy Edmondson. Amy is the expert on psychological safety, has really dedicated her career to help leaders and organizations create that safe place within their organization. There's such a need for that now, even more so than normal. So uh, episode 404, a great place for you to start there. We also uh, mentioned the importance of what to do with your own feelings and emotions as a leader. And if you're asking yourself that question, episode 438 would be a wonderful place for you to begin. What to do with your feelings? My guest on that episode was Lori Gottlieb. She is a therapist and walked through many of the resources and tools and thinking that'll be helpful to us on what to do with our emotions when it makes sense to seek out someone else who's got the professional training to help you unpack some of that. Uh, so much in episode 438 that will help you there. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 458, The Way to Be More Coach-Like with Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael has been a many-time guest on the show. He is the best-selling author of the book, The Coaching Habit, and also The Advice Trap. As Emily and I discussed in this conversation, we do tend to fall in the trap, a lot of us as leaders, of wanting to give it a lot of advice. And of course, there's a time and a place for advice, but often there's an even greater need for us to step back and to do coaching and to ask questions and the invitation as well from Michael on episode 458 for us to do more of that. All of those episodes can be found on the coachingforleaders.com website, along with all of the past Saturday casts where I featured our listeners and Academy members. Uh, you can look that up under the Saturday cast section. If you have your free membership set up, just go over to coachingforleaders.com to activate your free membership. You'll get access to the entire episode library searchable since 2011 by topic, all of the book notes of experts that I've had on the show. Uh, in addition, the member cast the weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday, my own personal library with the entire database of everything I've ever recommended in the weekly leadership guides that come on Wednesday. You can search that by topic as well. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go for that. Set up your free membership and you'll be off and running with all those resources right away. And coming up on Monday in just 48 hours, I'm welcoming Laura Huang to the show. She's a Harvard professor and is going to be teaching us how to turn 
adversity into advantage. Join me for that on Monday. Have a fabulous weekend and see you then. Take care.